Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Jim Hogan. An autistic computer scientist, Jim is both the principal innovation strategist at Google Cloud and the VP of Accessibility and Technology for Google's Disability Alliance. In today's conversation, we discuss Jim losing his brother at a young age, being bullied as a child and as an adult, how autism affects his everyday life, a traumatic experience working at a hostile environment, finding a place to belong at Google, psychological safety, the key to innovation, accessible technology, disclosure and accommodations at the workplace, and advice for those who want to be better allies of autistic people. In this episode, discover what's possible when you transform others with kindness. To learn more about Jim and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Jim Hogan. Hi, Jim. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Well, I'm Jim Hogan, and I am the Principal Innovation Strategist at Google Cloud, and I also am the Vice President of Accessibility and Technology for Google's Disability Alliance. All right. Well, let's start with your autism, and then we can talk about your work at Google later. Yeah, that autism thing. (laughs) Did you always know you were autistic? Yes, I was diagnosed as a child in 1971. And at that point, the doctors told my parents that I would be a burden to them for the rest of their lives, and and they would have to figure out who's going to take care of me after they're gone. And uh, I wish that doctor was alive now so I could look him in the eye and tell him, you know, I work for Google, jackass. So, (laughs) yes. Yeah, unfortunately, we hear that a lot from adults who were diagnosed back then before there was a lot of awareness, before there were a lot of services available for people with autism. What was it like for you growing up? Well, I mean, when I was growing up, basically I was, I was formed by things that happened in our, in our family. And, and, uh, like in 1976, we lost my brother in a, in a very sensational newsworthy way. And at that point I was unable to understand what grief was and what loss meant. So it was a huge learning experience for me. As my family melted down around me in grief, I really couldn't understand why. And all I cared about is that my needs were still being met. So it was a very, very much of an experience where my entire family just wanted to like put me back to where I came from. It was a a huge ability for me to actually learn what empathy was and things like that. So that basically started a, a point in my life where it was pretty much grow up and and be part of a, a functional part of the family. So when I was nine. Okay. Was your brother older? Yeah, my brother was uh, 19. 
And he was the person that I looked up to most. He was somebody who really understood me and, you know, it was kind of one of my people that, that was, you know, an advocate. So I ended up losing that, but I couldn't really understand what that, what that loss meant at the time. So because empathy is something that being autistic, you have to actually learn, you know, what grief means and what, how do you actually find your empathy and things like that. So a lot of people are born with that and understand that, but I had to actually kind of learn that through lived experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. What was it like for you at school? Well, I got beat up every day. And so my job was to try to avoid people as much as possible. And most of the time I was, I, you know, I was basically just an independent study. So I didn't really have much of a school life until I got to high school. And most of that time was spent swimming and reading in the library. Hmm. How did you cope with the bullying? I became really, really tough and strong. And uh, my father said that you have to learn how to protect yourself. So when I was younger, he basically took me and, and got me trained up how to, how to protect myself. And then it took a little while before I actually stood up to a bully. I was 13 going on 14. And I pretty much was standing in line at, at, at high school orientation, like standing in line to get our schedule and books. And some bully from my past just walked up and, you know, pushed me out of line. And I just remember that was the first time that I that I just said, like, I'm not going to take it anymore. And then after that, I didn't get, you know, as bullied as much. So because I was uh, at that point, I was a nationally ranked swimmer and, and very, very strong and tough. So. Mm. So they knew not to mess with you. Yeah, pretty much people learn as I grew up. And now I'm six foot four and, and, and I go about 280 and people don't normally walk up on the street and push me around. So that would be a very, very um, bad mistake. Mm. What were the adults around you doing? Like, did you try to go to your teachers or staff at school? Oh, no, that always just makes things worse. When you're being bullied, it's a, it's a, a you know, the torment is that most people don't really care. And that's really what, in today's world, what, what I try to teach is, is that it's about intervention. It's about having somebody step in. Uh, but most of the time, even adults today think like that's just normal part of growing up. So, you know, kids are kids, but it does definitely, you know, people don't realize that even though I'm big and physically strong now, I still have a fragility in my, in my mind um, for all the things that I've been through. Mm -hmm. That just never goes away. So, and that's really what I teach now for people to understand that intervention is key. But, you know, I was a pain to the teachers as well. So I was basically a know-it-all when I was in school and reading ahead and correcting people. And so I wasn't very well liked by adults or, or kids. So I didn't really have much, much going for me. Hmm. I see. And how does autism affect your everyday life today? Well, it doesn't normally affect my everyday life, except for the fact that you know, being autistic, you know, what, what happened was, is when, when I got my job offer at Google, I had had a conversation with my mother and, you know, basically she was so proud and happy. It was like, I got the job. I said, mom, I'm going to, I'm going to work at Google. And because my entire life, you know, I have been tormented in corporate America. So it just has been just one blood curdling siege after another, um, just, you know, worrying about, whether I'm going to get bullied and being bullied so much that I was actually, you know, in the hospital. And so when I told my mom, I got a job at Google, she was like, finally, you're going to land at a safe place. She knew that Google was very good with programs for autistic adults and, and other things. 
And then that was, I talked to her and then I was supposed to see her that Saturday and she passed away Friday night. Oh, wow. And that was our last phone call. The other thing that happened was George Floyd was murdered that weekend. And so what happened to me was I kind of stopped being like a self-advocate and, and became more of an activist, which is why I'm way more outspoken now. And I now am helping way more people than I ever have. So I have over 170 mentees in my life. I spend a lot of time doing content and a lot of time telling my story and, and trying to cut through my, my shame by, by using vulnerability. But being autistic is, is part of my existence. I'm 55 years old. I don't have any ability to mask anymore because it's just too tiring. So I am a take me as I am human now. And, and uh, when I joined Google, you know, I was accepted and I did find a sense of belonging. And I realized that belonging is something that's very hard work for, you know, not just for people around you, but it's actually, you have to be actively involved to get belonging. You can't just like walk into a party and belong unless you actually engage with people. And so we basically, my wife and I started to, craft new ways that we could tell my story. And we basically get a lot of people to tell the story. And because she says that a hundred people whispering is a lot better than one dude screaming. So, mm, yeah. And that's, that's basically how I handle my, uh, my being it's autistic adventure now. Mm-hmm. Could you back up and talk about that experience that led you to be in the hospital? What happened there? Well, that is, I was working for a company and I was involved in a hostile workplace with a guy who was lateral to me. And he basically was re- resisting some change that corporate had hired me to do, you know, as part of the, the accounting that we work for. So, and this is a very large company, 175,000 employees, a uh, very large, you know, multi-billion dollar project that they assigned me to. And what the corporate people wanted me to do was come in and implement new processes about how we're delivering services. And this guy resisted me. And because he was resisting me, the HR people were telling me to, to like keep tabs on him and figure out why he's resisting. And then what ended up happening was is it just led to him just, you know, repeatedly teasing and repeatedly just making my life more difficult than it needed to be. And then that all culminated to the event where he took a, a photo from 9-11, this very famous photo called The Falling Man. And he put that on the community bulletin board and he circled The Falling Man and drew a line and wrote the word Hogan. So I came in one day and saw that everybody was laughing around the bulletin board, you know, this public public community bulletin board at work. And once I walked in and realized, okay, today's going to be a good day, people are laughing and happy. But then I found out they were laughing at my expense. And I was basically like, that is not kind. Why are you laughing at this? This is, you know, this is nothing to laugh at. So finally, I just tore this thing off the wall and started screaming at everybody. And one of the things that my wife and I always say is that just because you're part of a marginalized community does not give you the right to act badly. And so people can say, oh, he's autistic, it's okay. But nobody will say that. So in corporate America, if you have a a meltdown inside the office suite you work, you are going to have ramifications for that. Mm -hmm. And my ramification was about three hours later, they called everybody into this big all-hands call and, and said, if you work for Jim Hogan in the morning, you no longer work for Jim Hogan. And then when I was upset about that, they came back and said, well, if you're upset and you don't want to be at work anymore, then we pro- we just you should just go take a leave and leave the office right now. You're not fired, but we don't want you here anymore. And the problem with that is that you can feel a snowball building up, Rachel. And the problem mm-hmm. with that is that I was relying on my job for my routine. And my routine was, you know, coming into the office, you know, stopping 
getting my coffee, checking my email, going to the community bulletin board, which I probably should have stopped doing. And basically, when they took that routine away, I had like nothing to protect myself from the environment around me because routine, I kind of used that to stay into a into a focused state. When the routine was gone, I basically didn't know how to advance throughout my day. So I was basically walking the street and it's after dark. And this is like the couple of days before my wife's second anniversary. So we're back in 2004. And somebody called the police and said, there's a suspicious person. You know, he's walking, he's kind of chanting to himself. He's rocking um, a very, very, uh, very peculiar looking large man. The police decided to react to that by just rolling up on me with four cop cars. And out of those four cop cars poured eight cops. And they thought it would be a good idea to just run around the corner and tackle me, which is never a good idea. I had my headphones on and I was basically caught by surprise when I was trying, some guy just like jumps on my back. It, it felt like when I was like play fighting with my nephews and everything, like some, some person just jumps on my back and I, that was his attempt to tackle me and take me down. And, and I, I didn't know what was going on. So I fought. So the next thing, you know, I'm like involved in like a, a major fight with eight cops and, and finally, I just realized, like, if I don't stop fighting and resisting, they're going to, and I didn't really have anything to resist for because I should not be in trouble for just walking down the street. And they said, we're trying to cuff you for your own protection. And the problem with that is that I wasn't causing any, any problem. I wasn't hurting myself by walking down the street. So the only people that were hurting me were them. Yeah. And then when they finally cuffed me, the guy put his knee on my neck and, and was driving me down to the sidewalk. And, and I basically was put into the back of an ambulance and injected with something. And that's when the story gets really interesting. So when they inject me with whatever they did, still don't know what that was. They were trying to do that to calm me down, but it had, it didn't have that effect on me. I became like any, any sense of reality that I had left was gone. It was just replaced by this paranoid delusion. So mm. I spent like the next 24 hours trying to just drink a bunch of water and get whatever they put into my system out of my system. And then I ended up being sent to more of a long-term facility because they said they're going to put me in for a 72-hour hold. I guess that they said that I was trying to do suicide by cop or something, which wasn't the case. And then when, when I went into the longer place, the, the person, all of a sudden, they come over the loudspeaker. It's like medication time. It was just like uh, that one flew of the cuckoo's nest scene where it's like medication time. Mm -hmm. I don't take medication, so I basically refused. And James Hogan, you need to take your medication one way or another. You're going to take this. I'm like, no, I'm I'm not going to take medication. So, and then the, the doctor was basically, you know, if you don't take the medication, we're going to commit you and you'll have to be here for two weeks. And at that point I was like, you know, I need a vacation. This place is gorgeous. You're going to feed me. I have a meditation room. So I just told him like, you know, I'm not going to take medication from anybody who doesn't know me. You, you don't even have the real story about what happened. You won't listen to me about what happened. So fine, just let me know when the judge is here. I'm going to be over here being fully compliant in every other area. So, and then I would basically like go up to the religion room and the orderly would be like, what's your religion? It's like, my religion is all of them. I'm Christian, I'm Jewish, I'm Muslim. I, I follow anything that Kurt Cobain used to follow because I do not want to be out in the, in the general population because all the people that were taking medication were all just running around hitting each other. And we had like one karate man guy who was like kicking people in the chest. So anyway, two weeks went by. I had a couple of interesting conversations with the doctor. He told me that he gets paid for every pill that he gives to people. And that's how he makes his money. I don't know why he told me that. <sighs> okay. It was very interesting. And then finally the judge came and 
the psychologist lady was assigned to me. She she was talking to me one time, and I started laughing about something she said. And I and she's she's like, "What are you laughing about?" I said, "Well, this is going to be a great chapter in my book someday." <laughs> and she just like does that out loud writing in my chart thing. She goes, "Delusions of grandeur." Oh gosh! I'm like, "Delusions of grandeur, delusions of grandeur," because I'm going to write a book someday. Like hundreds of people, thousands of millions of people write books, right? So. Um, so anyway, when the judge came, sorry, where was your wife during all of this? Was there anyone that could vouch for you or? Yeah. The, the doctor was like calling my wife and screaming at her that I won't take medication and, and that he thinks he's smarter than I am. And, and that's what the doctor was saying to her. And she's like, you know, you don't know him very well, but he is one of the smartest people in the world. And he's a, a, you know, computer science, you know, luminary. And that's what she was saying about me. And He's not going to take medication because he doesn't he doesn't take medication because he doesn't believe Medicaid is something if he's gone through some kind of trauma, which he has. So that's basically where she was. And then she got to come in and see me like an hour a day. They had the whole under observation watching, you know, tiny Japanese wife, large, large mental patient, you know, making sure that I was being watched all the time, mm. things like that. So but the judge, you know, he he basically started asking and when he asked the doctor, the doctor pretty much went into the whole diatribe about he won't take the medication. And the judge was like, why won't you take the medication, Mr. Hogan? I'm like, this guy doesn't know me from Adam. Like, I'm not going to take anything that he that he's prescribing to me. First of all, he doesn't even know. He's never even done any kind of medical testing or never looked at my background, never looked at a chart or anything. And I actually feel better than I felt in a long time. All I've been doing is sitting here, been fully compliant with my meals. I've lost 20 pounds in the two weeks. I've been meditating every day, doing my Tai Chi. You know, I love this place, but I'm not going to take medication. And then the judge is like, this doesn't sound like a sick person to me. And then the psychologist chimed, well, he has delusions of grandeur. It's like, what delusions of grandeur? Mr. Hogan, what are your delusions of grandeur? I'm like, I made the mistake of telling this one that this is going to be a chapter in my book someday. I'm going to call it the time that Jim Hogan was committed to some place and not something. And, uh, and he laughed. And he's like, what do you do for a living, sir? I said, I'm... I'm a principal computer science scientist at, at a very large computer sciences firm. And how did you learn how to do that? And I said, well, I'm self-taught. I basically learned computers when I was nine. And, you know, I basically am, am, am completely self-taught and, and I run a $2 billion project at Raytheon. And then he basically, like in the middle of my whole sentence, he just like gaveled down and said, you know, let's let Mr. Hogan out of here so he can go write that book. So, um <laughs> It was an amazing time for me because, you know, I called it the brain spa. I knew that I desperately needed to get my head right, but it wasn't by taking medication. And it's not that I don't agree with taking medication. It's just that, like, if somebody falls down and breaks their leg, you don't just give them painkiller. You don't just turn off the part of their brain that cares about the fact that the leg is broken. You actually put the leg in a, in a, in a, in a you reset the leg and you put it in a, in a brace and in a, in a cast and you, and you let it heal. And the brain for me, at least it, it's the same thing. It's like I, I ended up getting into a spot where reality had completely become a parallel universe to me as my mind slipped away. And, and I knew that I was having a psychotic break. And the term psychotic break, as soon as you say the word psychotic, it's like everyone's like, well, give them antipsychotics. And it's like, what is that going to do? That's not going to make me, we have to actually figure out, um, I have to get my head around. And then after I got out of the hospital, you know, when you when you're a mental patient, people don't like adore you with flowers and cards and we're so happy that you're feeling better. You know, nobody says that. Everyone's just like, you know, 
just kind of looking at you funny when you're walking down the street now because, you know, you're a mental patient. If I were to go into the hospital for surgery, you know, you come out and there's cards and flowers waiting for you. Mm -hmm. But nobody really likes to talk about it. They still don't like to talk there's about it. There's a big stigma around mental health. Yep. Yeah, this was basically in 2004. But, you know, even if it were to happen today, I don't think that I would have the admiring, um, you know, faces of, of my family coming out and, and giving me a hug as I come out of the hospital because nobody really cared about that. So, yeah. And I mean, I just want to say one thing that, you know, medication probably works for some people. Like, just want to make that kind of disclaimer, right? That we're not trying to... Right. And I'm not saying it doesn't work. My thing is that if I'm having a, some kind of trauma, we have to get to the bottom of the trauma, not just take medication to mask the trauma. So mm -hmm. something made me that way. And so I'm not somebody who stands up and says, you know, I don't take medication. You know, I take medication for certain things, but I'm not going to let some doctor who's never talked to me before, knows nothing about my medical history, diagnose me anything. And then when I ended up getting out, we found like a brain team and nobody wanted me to be on medication. Everybody just wanted me to keep doing what I was doing, journaling, meditating, making sure I establish guardrails so I know that I'm, if I'm about to go off the rails again, because, because cruelty is everywhere. So, mm -hmm. and cruelty will definitely find me again. Did you end up going back to that same company? I ended up staying on leave for a while. And then when they brought me into reactivated me. They basically stripped away my manager, you know, responsibility and sent very nasty letters. And so I just looked for a new job and uh, I ended up landing at, at Accenture. Okay. And then when I was at Accenture, when I have a new project that I'm on, I, I, I do a Jim Hogan user guide. So I basically explained to everybody that I'm autistic. This is the way I schedule my time. This is how you should interact with me. Oh, that's great. And, you know, I may be wearing noise-canceling headphones, don't sneak up on me, you know, things like mm -hmm. that. What happened to the guy who kind of did that prank, I guess? He got promoted. And that's what's really kind of terrible about this story is you think about bullies and you think about children usually at school. And these adults who are bullies, maybe they were bullies when they were children, but Sometimes you don't hear how their behavior really impacts people around them. And it's sad, I guess, because it's still happening. But it's something that I think is not really in the spotlight. Right. And it's true. Those things are everywhere. You know, bullies are... are um, and when, when I said to my, my partner here at Google, you know, that I wanted to actually, you know, just round up all the bullies and stick them in a warehouse someplace and, and lock them in there. And, and then, you know, obviously I was joking, but, uh, but no, Jim, hurt people hurt people. So we have to actually shine the light of kindness on hurt people to teach them, you know, that they shouldn't be bullies anymore. Hmm. So that's kind of where that came from. So we started this thing called Transform with Kindness with the goal of, Spreading kindness everywhere because nobody says no to kindness. You could be the meanest person on earth and you, you don't say no to kindness. But that's really what we found out about bowling. Well, now, years later, if that happened today, how would you respond differently to that bully? Well, it wouldn't happen today because I step away much, much faster. So that's what we, we put guardrails in place to make sure that I knew when I had a bully like that. So, but I've always, I've always had somebody in my life that's been treating me badly. And, you know, even here at Google, there was a guy, but the reality is that it was just handled so much better by my current boss. It was like, when you ask about, do people intervene? Like what do adults do? 
you know, I still have the adults in my life, AKA leadership. And this is the first time where somebody identified the fact that like, you don't really seem like you're, you're, you're thriving, uh, you know, because there seems to be some kind of personality clash. So in a nice way saying, you know, we're going to move you a new team, which ended up being really good for me. So, because mm-hmm. the thing about Google is, is the first time I've ever been completely 100% out and proud about being an autistic individual. Like I not only tell just the people who are in my orbit, but I tell the people I basically speak all the time. And that that's the, the big difference is that, you know, I kind of upgraded to activists and I realized like you're dealing with something that when somebody keeps telling me that, you know, this is what my lived experiences have been like, and then you start treating me poorly, that is not somebody who is, who is, you know, that I would be able to work with. So, and I didn't have to even make a decision about maybe I should walk away from this job because my boss kind of realized that and and said, you know, we're going to move you away from him. But then what happens to that person? Like, where is that consequence? There is no consequence. I mean, the, the sad reality is there's no consequence for doing anything terrible in, in corporate America. I have seen people lie, just blatantly lie, not at Google. You know, I had the, the, the experience at Accenture where I, I basically printed out my user guide and the guy who was like in charge of the whole project. So I have everybody around the table and just like to go over this user guide about how to engage Jim Hogan. And he just kind of got like one page in and closed it up, and threw it down and said, isn't there a pill you can take to be more normal? Oh, wow. And I said, why would I take a pill? I'm the cure for what you have. <laughs> and then basically that guy, of course, became my nemesis for the next four years. So every time he had the opportunity to try to make up a, a story about me, he would do that. And one time he got the opportunity to write like a performance review for some work that I did that really wasn't even in his his orbit, but he lied about me. He just basically, he, he completely lied, got a couple of people to go along with him for political reasons. And and the next thing you know, it's like laddered right at the bottom, you know, and then they have the career discussion appears in your calendar and you attend that call. It's like, I'm sorry, but your performance just isn't up to Accenture standards and we're going to have to ask you to leave. It's like, okay, like after four years. And he's like, well, you seem happy about this. It's like, yes, I'm, I am happy about this because like you let people exist in this, in this world who, who, you know, lie, cheat and do everything they can to, to move themselves up at the expense of other people. And this wasn't a company I want to be associated with. We then tried, my wife and I tried to set up a company where we were helping autistic individuals get jobs and, you know, a very noble, ambitious effort. And one of the Accenture people who were like one of the people that that used to work with me on projects, you know, decided like, this is a very altruistic thing you're doing. I want to come over and help you and said, okay. And then that person ended up making my, my own company a hostile workplace. Oh. And I had to just like walk. I just like told my wife, it's like, I got to walk away from this. We got to like shut this thing down because it's, I'm, you know, those guardrails that we set up, they're, they're going off right now. And it, it basically just one after another. Finally, I found happiness and, and I thought I was going to be really content, you know, at a new job. And then some new person comes into my life. And, you know, sometimes you just end up against the worst bullies that you've ever seen. And then you just have to like, now I just will, I will just pack up my, my toys and leave the playground. I, I don't I don't deal with bullies anymore. So Okay, got it. Well, let's talk about your work at Google. You wear a few different hats, right? So could you describe what you do under each role? Well, the as principal innovation strategist, I, I basically help account teams in a sales organization, you know, 
deploy and, and utilize Google products, Google Cloud products. And as an innovation strategist, I'm starting to set up, you know, standards and basically come up with actual ways to, to study whether or not innovation was effective or not. So I study things like causality to understand, you know, why is innovation effective one place and not another and, and efforts. And because and nobody's really said, you know, hey, here's the here's the standards and, and, and policies and procedures that should be in place to, to innovate well. So. Mm-hmm. So when that role, I'm basically, which I basically made up because I kind of came to Google and said, you know, innovation is my jam and talk to my boss about what I, what I do for a living. And, and that's the, the title I came up with. And so I started innovation strategy practice inside Google, which is cool. And then I have account teams come to me and, and help me get the customer to kind of have these, what I call campfire moments where you have like a project team sitting around and everybody's on the same page. And everybody has the goals. You try to work with the people who are the most boisterous on calls, building psychological safety for everybody. Because what happens is, is that you have one loudmouth who will end up uh, monopolizing conversations. And the only ideas that will come out is is that individual's Mm -hmm. idea. And that doesn't work. So you see people that are really good at, at innovation. And what they have is they basically have more psychological safety and let voices be heard from everybody. So. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by psychological safety? Well, psychological safety, just at its at its most basic, is feeling comfortable to speak up and even if an you know to throw an idea out there. If you don't have psychological safety, there'll be ramifications for somebody speaking out on a call and suggesting something that should be done a certain way. And so, without psychological safety, people that that are quiet or are, are tend to be bullied, which lo and behold turns out to be the neurodistinct population, you know, autistic individuals, people with ADHD, people with dyslexia, who have been bullied throughout their whole lives, they become very quiet and they don't contribute as much. So, what we'd like to do is is make it psychologically safe for everybody to speak up. No ideas is uh, is something that shouldn't be heard. And then what we find out is that you have a, a broader spectrum of ideas coming out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that process moves very quickly. And if you look at like a startup men- mentality from a company, you know, beanbag chairs and foosball tables and these things that Google tries to maintain as as we grow and tries to maintain project teams like little companies, because they're basically trying to create this mentality where everyone's working towards a common goal. But as companies grow, it becomes more and more difficult to maintain that type of thing. So we have to kind of come back and remind people that, it's really as simple as saying, be kind, like let people, let people speak up. There's no ramification for somebody speaking up because it's, it's hilarious. The amount of times, you know, in today's day and age where you actually hear somebody was, well, that's a stupid idea. And guess what? Nobody wants to talk up when somebody's going to tell, tell them their idea is stupid. Yeah. And no, it's not a good idea to tell somebody that their idea is stupid. That's not the same thing as letting everybody talk. So it's about being kind and psychological safety basically culminates in no idea being left left unsaid because there isn't going to be that that person who's going to jump up and say you know no that's that's a terrible idea it's stupid you know going back to elementary school right elementary school corporate america as i call it so <laughs> yeah you've said in an article belonging is the fuel of innovation and it's true because people think that for innovation you have to fail, like fail, fail, fail. That's all you really hear people say when they talk about innovation. It's like, well, we have to fail fast. We have to fail big. We have to fail. We have to have ideas. We have to try and we have to fail. The problem is that a lot of industries like healthcare and life sciences and government, you know, for like if I'm I'm talking to like 
Jen Easterly at CISA, with the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, and or if I'm talking to like the hospital system that I used to work for, there is no budget for failure. Like I can't deploy something new for an operating room if there's any risk that it's going to fail. So to get the best ideas and to you know suppress that desire to fail that many folks who are innovators come out with, you basically have to come out and say, you know, belonging is basically jet fuel. The greater amount of belonging you have, the more each idea is going to go. So if your currency or if your budget for failure is very, very small, then we work on bolstering belonging. And then it makes people, you know, deploy product better and with more accuracy and and thereby, you know, more bang for the buck. Of course, you're still saying like, if I try something new, how do I try that in a in a way where I can fail, but mitigate risk and things like that? There's just some organizations that have way greater budgets for failure because there's no lives in danger if something goes wrong. They just throw something out there and then, oh yeah, that didn't work. So tomorrow we'll fix it. So so it's just basically comes from the mindset of, of what and who you're innovating for. And it just turns out that most of the projects that I've been working on are life and death, you know, things that just you just can't get wrong. Mm. So mm-hmm. got it. And tell us about your role as the VP of accessibility in technology for Google's Disability Alliance? Well, that's a very special role for me because I was actually elected to that position by my peers. The Disability Alliance is an employee resource group that covers all of Alphabet. When they told me like that I was nominated elected to the role, I was, I was quite happy because it's actually more important than, to me, it's actually more fulfilling than just applying for a job and getting the job. Even though I applied for a job at Google like 40 times and finally got hired. But the nominated role and being elected to that role, it was uh, it's very, very special. And so we basically help the Google product teams make products better for Googlers because most of the time we're using a different version of product. So we basically will look at Google Meet and come back and say, here's what we could do to make this more accessible or this group of users is looking to do. And then I use my influence inside Google to, to push product teams to get that, get that done and add, add new features that are, that are great. And then the other part of that is I get to play with, with new things that come out, especially in the group that I try to serve, which is like non-speaking autistic individuals and try to figure out like, are there technologies out there that we could bring forth? And there may or may not be, that could be very private and confidential and I can't talk about it, but I get to work on that if it did exist. I was just going to ask what features you're excited about. And so, you know, and I can tell you like things like in Meet and then, and then other, others came and and adopted there's things like the raise hand feature and the raise hand feature is about somebody who like myself, there's a meeting going on. There's like 15 people on the meeting and there's all kinds of crosstalk and people are interrupting each other. And for me, like I can't, I can't understand what the hell's going on. So basically it, the raise hand feature allows me to, to pause the cadence of the meeting, you know, to be able to just stop everything and kind of jump in and, and say what, what I have to say. And it's incredibly important because if there's too much going on, it's like a super highway that's traveling 10,000 miles an hour. Like I have a very hard time getting a word in edgewise. So if they don't, if, if people that are on the call with me ignore the raise hand feature, then I get really angry because it's part of my user guide and it's, you know, that exists for a reason. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm kind of a, you know, a huge activist when it comes to, to making sure every voice is being heard. So, so, so you put the, you know, the, put the raise hand feature out there and things like, like captions everywhere. It's a, something that, that really is a, is a life changer. And all the folks that I, that I've seen that are doing that work and 
now you can just open up a Chrome browser and have captions for anything you're watching. It's it's just quite amazing. So very excited about that. And I'm very excited about anything that's coming out in the future that I may or may not have seen yet. Okay. <laughs> we'll stay tuned for those. What are some accessibility concerns that you think could be improved or that you'd like to see developed? Well, what's funny is that when you think about accessibility, there's this Chick-fil-A that I go to. It's in the Dallas airport. It's like right next to, always next to where my flight back to San Diego is every time I'm in Washington, D.C. And it has a very complicated queuing system. It's a very narrow queue because it's just like right in the middle of the terminal, has a huge queue. And I always think about accessibility there because, you know, U.S. dollars is one of the only dollars that doesn't have any type of textural, um, textual context of what dollar bill are. They're all the same size. There's been a couple of pilots where they try to put like some kind of symbol on like a, a $5 bill one time, but they came back and said that it's very difficult to do that because money wears out and those things will go away and, mm. and we would have to renew money faster. But if you think about the fact that like our money is not blind friendly at all, mm-hmm. uh, you have to actually have somebody you trust, you know, put your money in your wallet for you. And then if you, if you talk about like somebody who's nonverbal, there's no way to order the Chick-fil-A. You can't get into the queue. And then basically there's a spot where people that are using accessibility devices like wheelchairs can come in and cut the line. But people that are in a wheelchair, they don't want to be special. They just want to be everything to be equitable. They don't want to cut the line. They want to just go in and, and, and just be like everybody else and just have everything be equitable. And the reason I use that as an example is I'm always thinking about in this queue, like, if I were deaf or blind or using a mobility device, I probably would not get into Chick-fil-A. And nothing to do with Chick-fil-A. It just has to do with the way that systems are created and something as simple as, as just ordering fast food. There's a person, you basically walk up, they ask you what your name is. And if you're nonverbal or if you're deaf, there's no way for you to actually order the Chick-fil-A. There's no way to actually type. There's no way to, to use a kiosk or anything. And I just use that as a random example, just because that's where I'm always in that mindset of thinking about the accessibility question, especially when I'm, when I'm seeing that. I use that as an example all the time. But I mean, accessibility is a science that is literally as simple as we don't even have money for blind people. In the United States of America, when you think about it, there's like so much work to be done. So it's, it's, yeah. uh, there's basically lots of big rocks that need to be broken down in accessibility. Mm-hmm. Okay. And at Google, you also train managers, right? How to interview for neurodiverse talent. Is that correct? Yeah, I basically contributed to the program for our autism career program. And there's a curriculum that is offered that people can, you know, because it's not about, nothing about our process being inaccessible or, you know, not inclusive because anybody can apply for a job at Google. The problem is that it's too exclusive. and so. People are being eliminated from consideration based on societal norms that exist and certain things for neurodistinct candidates like myself, you know, if I'm fidgeting, making, not making eye contact, rocking back and forth, maybe stammering, stuttering, that has nothing to do with my ability to do a job. So we, we did do training where, where we move those unconscious biases aside and make sure that nobody is, is making an evaluation based on things that are, you know, how somebody is, is neurologically wired. And it does make a big difference. We have to do a lot more of that, you know, in the world. But basically, those societal norms that exist that say if you don't look somebody in the eye, you're you're not honest or whatever those things are. You know, I guarantee you they weren't written by an autistic person. So 
Right. And it's, it's about allowing people to be them, their genuine selves and letting them in for the opportunities that exist. And the help that's provided by like our partner Stanford is a kind of like a little bit of help about doing resumes and maybe a little interviewing help, things like that. And then it's, you know, I'm not really a big, big advocate for telling autistic people to like force eye contact and all that stuff. I want people to just be the genuine selves. And the other thing that Google does is we have a, a champion program where somebody can actually ask for an autistic champion. And sometimes they even get me. If you're a candidate in the process, you can then start asking somebody like, what is your life like at Google as an autistic individual? And of course, I say awesome. You know, we have a cube club and everything. <laughs> That's Rubik's Cube. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. And so the Transform with Kindness program that you do, is that exclusively with Google or is that something you're doing on the side? No, it's with Google and we're actually extending that to customers. So we're helping customers also transform with kindness. So that basically is the content is created for us to start with doing all audience calls at Google. And then we do, you know, now we're now we're actually branching out into like actually going into talks for customers. And uh, the format basically talks about, you know, we we tell a story from my past or somebody's past that that sparks empathy, an empathetic reaction, and then we put that empathy in action by teaching them how things could have been better. And usually, 15, 20 minutes of content per what we call a card for kindness. And those, those cards for kindness are, we basically have, you know, different themes. And we basically will metaphorically fan out a deck of cards and pick one and we'll give a presentation and we'll kind of show what it looks like from a business value perspective if you were to do this a different way. So that's the, the real difference is that we're not just talking about, you know, be kind because it's good for humanity. It's like, you know, we're saying be kind because it's good for the bottom line. So, which makes everybody perk up and listen. Yeah, you have to get them where their values are. <laughs> In these trainings, I'm just wondering, you know, it's great that you're having these conversations and for, I guess, the average employee, maybe they would practice more empathy when put in these situations. But for those so-called bullies who have maybe their own trauma that they're bringing to the workplace also, which, as you were saying, might be why they are also hurting other people. Do you have any success stories, I guess? Have you seen anyone kind of transform? Well, I actually have. So one of the first groups I wanted to, to talk to at Google, there was an individual there who, who was, uh, you know, they're not necessarily a bully, but just didn't seem, seem to be very happy and content. But by the end of the program, you could see the, a spark change in that individual. So just a little bit of a sparkle, you know, and it's, really designed for that. That's really what it's designed for. Our, our content is designed to make sure that people understand that it's okay to be vulnerable and, and, and if you're feeling hurt, you know, and then a lot of people, you know, basically replace vulnerability with just being nasty. And I used to try that. I used to be like, I'm so sick of being bullied. I'm just going to be the biggest jerk in the room. Mm. But that doesn't work because it just erodes my own my own self-dignity. But I have seen, you know, somebody that, was transformed by this and, and was able to come back and talk about things that even my partner says, you know, maybe I was a bully, you know, it's like maybe sometime I was a bully just because of some experience. Not because that's what people think when you start talking about bullying. It's like, well, maybe there is somebody in my past that I've done that too. And so when you start talking about it happening to somebody else, then it makes them start asking out those questions. And am I handling this as kind as I can? 
And we use the word kind because it's not about being, you know, changing yourself. It's just about saying, saying yes to kindness. And uh, there isn't anybody who's going to be like, no, I'm going to be mean. I'm going to choose to be mean. So once you start reminding people that kindness is the way to go, you do see a, a marked difference in, in the way that they're interacting with folks. So good, good. I don't have a huge scientific study or anything, but I do think that people do feel very, you know, happy and fulfilled after after they hear these little talks. Mm -hmm. So, well, that's good. Okay, Jim. Switching topics, I'm happy to announce that you're considering to join our board of directors at the Global Autism Project. So, what excites you about the work that we're doing? Well, I mostly. I like the fact that it's a global reach and a lot of folks are not talking to me about things that are going on outside the United States. So that's why I'm, I'm considering that and, you know, anything that I can do to help. You know, the, the thing is, is that most organizations, they have a, like an advisory board made up of, of autistic people. I air quote a lot. I know what this is radio. So, but basically I always consider that kind of like the Thanksgiving kitty table where I'm sitting there with my spork eating my turkey dinner. And so I'm trying to make sure my efforts are concentrating on places where I can actually make the most impact. So I'm already a, a board member at Next for Autism, and, and I'm always looking to add something that I can do, have a global impact, and if I can do that, that work. So that's why I'm excited about it. You know, people started to take notice and, you know, hey, maybe Jim Hogan should actually be on the board board and not sitting at the folding table anymore. So <laughs> I, and I'm happy that because I can operate silverware. Like I am capable of eating my turkey dinner with a knife and a fork. So mm -hmm. I, I have excellent manners. So, but that's the little, uh, I use the, the kitty table example as a, you know, to, to describe, not saying that people aren't doing good work, um, but I find that most of it is just there to make the masses uh, feel like, oh yes, we do have some autistic people over here on the side advising us about stuff. So, and then that when you're dealing with organizations that have virtually no autistic leadership that are trying to you know, most of the organizations are started because somebody's a caretaker and somebody has is, has been impacted by, you know, autism in some way. But I do bring a perspective to the table that's like, you know, I have been in on the on the other side of, of the autism equation. My lived experiences are are very valuable to people that are trying to provide services. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So on the topic of disclosure, I know that it's a personal decision and some people say they disclose only when necessary. What do you think about this? Like, let's say in an interview and maybe after you get hired? Well, disclosure is deeply personal. So what's interesting is like, it's not just disclosing like, hey, I'm autistic because companies put that into the category of, of a disability. As an individual, I don't mind being put into that category because I've had medical intervention my entire life. And I think that anything that's had medical intervention, you know, that, that, that technically could be a disability. And I always talk about the fact that disability has nothing to do with the individual. Disability has to do with the world that, that surrounds an individual not enabling them. And so basically, you know, environmental changes are sometimes needed. So I basically talk about my disclosure story and I check the box that I have a disability. And then at Google, they have a box that you can check for neurological disability which is kind of a new new thing for me. Hmm. And I do check the box. Where I draw the line is how disclosure is tied with accommodations. And accommodation is a gut-wrenching, humiliating experience where I have to actually come back and, as a 55-year-old man, prove that I'm autistic somehow and that I need to have 
you know, I need to have X, Y, Z. I've never asked for an accommodation, especially if somebody is going to be so rigid in their process that it starts with, hey, give me a doctor's note. And people will talk about the fact like, well, if you're if you have a mobility device or you're using a wheelchair, obviously you're disabled. But it's all these, you know, neurodistinct people that are running around that. And it's like, whoa, like, so that's where disclosure kind of comes into a, a problem with me is that somebody can't actually ask for any help from Google unless you say, hey, I have this problem. That's one of the things that is common knowledge that disclosure has somehow been tied to giving people what they need to actually do their jobs better. And it, it's, a, it's just something that I refuse to, I refuse to go through a process, even if I did need something, it, when it starts up, when you start opening a, a thing, and the first thing I start asking for is like, here, insert your doctor's note. And it's like, doctor's note, like, I don't have to prove I was born a certain way, right? I was born this way. I am not broken. I just need the world around me sometimes to help. And so because of that, you know, that process is very humiliating. Disclosure is is deeply personal, but when you tie disclosure to accommodation, it, it that becomes, you know, even even more tricky. So So do you think on the employer's side, they're asking for that, I guess, proof because people might take advantage? I mean, that's actually kind of surprising that someone might take advantage. Yeah, don't know why. And the other thing that happens at companies is that they will take the request and then they go off and discuss it over here you know, without the person. And then that violates the international rule of nothing about us without us. We don't have conversations about somebody without them being included in the conversation. And, you know, especially when you're talking about non-autistic people trying to figure out what's good for the, for the new autistic employee. So accommodations is something that really needs to be disrupted. Most of the people that are doing those things are not impacted. They've never asked for an accommodation. You know, most people that have the dedicated office that they love were just given a dedicated office that they love, not because they need it or, you know, it's, 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 it's just a very interesting process. So, yeah. and one of the examples being like a, a company may have assigned seats for some and not assigned seats for others. And then they say, if you want an assigned seat and you don't have one, then go through the accommodation process. But the problem is that if some, anybody in the company has an assigned seat that didn't have to go through the accommodation process, now we're not, we're, we're no longer equitable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not, you know, the same rules don't apply to everybody because some people just get to come to work and go to their office. So other people have to beg for the ability to do that. Well, explain to me, you know, just give me a doctor's note. Maybe I'll think about it. Well, well, Johnny didn't have to sign it, give you a doctor's note. You know, and so you, you think about things that are, you know, lack equity. And that's one of the things. Combinations is a huge prickly pear. So, you know, just all over the place. I hear it all the time. So hmm, interesting. Okay. And I mentor over 170 people and most uh, talk about the accommodation process. So not just at Google, I, I mentor people all over the world. And, you know, most of the conversation, the number one topic, if I were to rank them is, is uh, you know, the first thing is accommodation, not just for autistic individuals, it's just people asking for accommodations and people asking for people to understand what dyslexia is and, and people understand what ADHD is and and the first thing that a, a manager, like, you know, this isn't just Google centric, but if a manager says to them, if you need extra help with your ADHD, then please go talk to your, your accommodation people about that. And let us know what you need. And it's like, that's not what the person's, the person's just asking for kindness at that point. They're just asking for, you know, to be made to feel like they're part of something. And so that's what's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Got it. All right, Jim, I'd like to close with one last question. 
What advice would you give to people who are interested in being better allies to those with disabilities? Like, let's say in the workplace. Well, the best advice that I can give is to is to make sure that you are giving them a platform to tell their stories and, and amplifying their voices. A lot of folks don't provide the the opportunity to build content and to have people tell their stories, and and that's the, really the sad part. Sometimes I I will say that the content that we do is the most important thing that we do, and giving people the opportunity to kind of tell their stories and and really understand what the what they actually need. And, you know, that's the best way to be an ally. So the folks that I'm allied up with at Google, the most valuable folks to me are the ones who are amplifying my story. And if I post something or if I email, you know, somebody will, will come back and say, yes, this really needs to be paid attention to. So especially if you have somebody who's, who's higher up, and that's, that's a way to be a good ally is to make sure that you are doing the work to, to amplify the voices around you and make sure that you're, that you're hearing everybody mm-hmm. and taking their situations, you know, very, very serious and allowing them the opportunity to tell their story. Yeah. All right, Jim, anything else that you want to talk about that I didn't get to? No, you don't care about my Rubik's Cube. <laughs> do you want to talk about your Rubik's Cube? Well, you know, I do I do have a external site called thingabouthardproblems.com that talks about the Rubik's Cube being a metaphor for why we should be all solving problems. So maybe we'll save that for our next podcast. <laughs> All right. How can people learn more about you and your work? Do you have a website or LinkedIn or something? Social media? The best place to stalk Jim Hogan is on LinkedIn. Okay. I am a, a content publisher, so I do have a lot of content. And so hopefully the, the content that I produce this week after meeting my boss face-to-face for the first time after being here for two years is, is going to be very fun and entertaining for everybody. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. All right. Well, thank you, Jim. This was a really fun conversation. Well, thanks for having me. And thank you for listening, Radio Land. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. By sharing stories that spark empathy, we too can remind others to choose kindness. Have you ever transformed someone with kindness? Share your experiences over in our online global autism community. Like Jim, are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Or are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.